Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we will be speaking with the mayor of Northampton later on in the show. We are going to have the mayor's response to the critics of the Main Street redesign. First, we're going to start with something a bit different today. We have two members of the Northampton High School class of 01, Morgan Walsh and Joe Newman. Uh, Ms. Walsh and Ms. Newman, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate your time today. Uh, Ms. Walsh, I understand you're at some distance from Northampton. Speaking to us from where? Yes, I am here uh, coming to you live from Milan in Italy. Aha! Well, you could have gotten farther away from uh, from your parents. Uh, my younger daughter did. She lives in Mauritius. Okay. And Joe Newman, uh, I understand you 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 are here uh, because of your independent talent, not because you might be have well be a relative of someone. Is that is that right? Well, I thought Talk the Talk today should be sponsored like Sesame Street, so we could say. Welcome to Talk to the Talk. Today is brought to you by the letter N for nepotism. <laughs> okay, so uh, here we are with the letter N. And would you like to explain the nepotism or you want to talk about what we're talking about? I've just known Buzz for a really long time. <laughs> I bump into him when I'm in town. I really like Marcine. I look at some of my old baby pictures, and I swear Buzz is in some of them. I just want <laughs> listeners to know this studio is crawling with Newmans. They're everywhere. So uh, I, I believe we've met before. Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm getting that. I'm getting that idea. So listen, uh, you two guys ha- have had an idea, and I understand. Morgan, I don't know how quite how to put this, but J- Joe has just enticed you and or convinced you that convincing your job was a good idea. Uh, do you want to tell us about that? So Joe came to me with uh, this project idea a few months ago. And uh, yeah, it took a little bit of uh, bribery and begging. But yeah, I left my job. Very excited. You're very I'm, excited. They're to- finding out about it right now. <laughs> okay, Joe, what did you do? This is your friend Morgan. You just convinced her to quit her job. Why did you do that to your friend Morgan? Um, in all seriousness, I think Morgan is one of the funniest, most talented people I've ever met. And I didn't think her job was doing a very good job taking care of that. Um, so I had this idea that we were going to start with a website and a podcast where we would tell short, funny, true bedtime stories for adults. And I started sending them to Morgan, and she started sending me back edits, which I didn't ask for. (laughs) Yeah. And I realized what a good storyteller she would be and what a value add she'd be for me. So she doesn't know how to turn the ringer off on her WhatsApp, so I just called her every day. All right. So you want to tell us? I mean, the idea, let's have a website. I mean, really? I mean, you got to do something a little bit more than have a website, I think. So why don't you tell us a bit about what the idea is or was? So I was sitting, I have two little kids, I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old, and I'm sitting in their bedroom, and I, we've just been to the library, and there are, I don't know, 150, 200 kids' books sitting in this bedroom, and a lot of them have been published before 1983, which my mother has held on to for the past 35 years through a house fire. (laughs) Yes. In, yes. Yes. In anticipation, and, she's going to be a grandmother. Yay! <laughs> but I mean, living in the valley here, you know how prolific children's book authors and illustrators are. And these books are from 
all over the world, spanning at least 100 years just sitting in my kids' room. So there's a whole lot of people out there who are way smarter than me who agree that bedtime stories are a great way to turn off your brain. And I have horrible insomnia. I mean, it's actually, it's so bad, it's it's impressive. Um, and I thought, why don't I have bedtime stories? And so I say this to Morgan, and Morgan goes, Joe, those are called books. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, is that there's a whole bunch of reasons why picking up a book at the end of the day doesn't work for everybody. For a lot of people, it feels like work. For a lot of people, you have to gear yourself up to get in front of the book. And from a Pew poll, two-thirds of adults admit to sleeping with their phones. So we can't turn off the phone, we can't turn off our brain, and bedtime stories work. So we took those three issues, put them together, and now we make these bedtime stories for adults. And to, to really cater to the snarkiest among us, which I pride myself and Morgan as being in that group, the stories are true. We have a great time being incredibly creative with them. We take them on uh, three sentences on the website, a beginning, a middle, and end, and we make the rest up from get you, to get you from point A to point B to point C. But these are stories to tell you that whatever you're spiraling about at the end of the day, here is a sweet 10 to 12 minute story about somebody who did something way dumber than you did. <laughs> because anxiety loves company. <laughs> okay, and the and the title or the of this of this podcast is This is called Anxiety Addicts Bedtime Stories because we're not trying to get rid of your anxiety or your insomnia. We're just helping you along your journey. <laughs> and here's an example of one of your podcasts. Oh yeah, Morgan, you wanna talk a little bit about those? The um the the episode you're about to yeah. put up right now. Yeah. So, well, you can probably talk about it better. This is one of our favorites. Um, it's near and dear to Joe's heart. <laughs> this is um, read by. Do, do, do so you do 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 you want to say more about this or not? <laughs> I'm just happy she didn't pick one with me in it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is read by Silicon Valley's Josh Brunner. I read most of them, and then we bring in. Um, famous and better voice actors to read, uh, I don't know, about 20% of them. But this is super fun. It's totally true. And uh, enjoy. Insomniacs, the stressed out, the overworked, the doom scrollers, the worried and the bored. This is for you. Good writing is meant to make you think. This is the opposite. Short, funny, and unfortunately true stories that have mostly to do with nothing to help you turn off your brain and turn on your REM. All names have been changed to protect the guilty. These are Anxiety Addicts Bedtime Stories. Dex is Canadian to the core. His mental Rolodex of hockey stats is wildly impressive to people from other countries. He's also smart, like super smart. And he loves to solve problems, any kind of problem. Give him a Rubik's Cube, a road closure not on Google Maps, or a need for a rigged-up homemade Zamboni, he's on it. Or, say, illegal contraband in his sincerely polite homeland. A long time ago, he was also 12. 
Like a good Canadian 12-year-old, he spent his time playing hockey, dipping various foods in maple syrup, and playing with his adorable English bull terrier, Mitzi. In those years, before the internet, there were some consumer goods that were almost impossible to acquire in Canada, like designer jeans, Capri Sun, and porn. He was the only boy in a house full of sisters. This particular year, on the girls' annual Christmas time shopping trip, he decided to tag along. He had, quite literally, dreamed of making his way to New York City to purchase some adult entertainment and knew this was his opportunity and would be worth suffering through an eight-and-a-half-hour-long car ride. His best friend Dingo and his family were part of the group, so the two moms rented a passenger van and made their way down south to Manhattan. The sisters gabbed throughout the entire car ride. They were excited about the clothes and shoes and makeup that they would buy with their waitressing money. Dex and Dingo sat silently in the back seat, plugged into their yellow Sony Walkmans blasting the tragically hip. They'd already made their plan. They had never been to the city as teenagers, but they knew that they were finally old enough to go do their own thing. They also knew that Times Square was a seedy neighborhood, and seedy neighborhoods were probably good places to buy porn. They were not wrong. When the passenger van drove over the bridge into Manhattan with the towering buildings and thousands of colorful lights, every person gazing out the window had a different vision. The shopping trip was something the girls looked forward to all year long. It was even better than Christmas Day. The trip gave them the opportunity to transform into hipper, more sophisticated, and better-dressed versions of themselves. New York provided this little group with the same possibility she provides everyone who enters her limits. The chance of total metamorphosis. For Dex and Dingo, they drove into the city as boys, but they would leave her as men. The boys parted ways with the rest of the group who wanted to hit up Gimbals and Barneys while the boys booked it to 42nd Street, laser-focused on their mission. Now, this was 1985, and Times Square was not the Disney, MTV, M&M store, PG-rated neighborhood that it is today. It used to be downright dangerous. Dex and Dingo held their money tight in their pockets as they navigated the streets overrun with dealers, pimps, and 25-cent peep shows, which, even with the exchange rate, was a very good deal. They managed to spend an afternoon in Times Square without getting robbed, solicited, or herpes, and left with their prized possession, a VHS tape with God knows what on it. Then, proud of themselves, they each got an enormous slice of pizza and eventually headed to the meeting place. The girls had shot themselves silly, which was a bit of a problem. If they got searched by Border Patrol, they would have to provide receipts and pay taxes on their new purchases. So they pulled off all the tags, threw away the receipts, and folded everything up in suitcases as if they'd owned nine pairs of guest jeans for years. When Dex saw the lengths everyone was taking to hide their goods, he got nervous. As the family piled into the giant van, Dex made a game-time decision. He pulled the VHS out of his leather bomber jacket and stuffed it into his mom's suitcase, his heart beating so loud he was sure everyone could hear it. The ride back was much quieter than the ride there. Everyone was exhausted, and most of the girls fell asleep. Not Dex. His stomach was in knots. He tried to finagle his way back to the trunk where all the suitcases were packed together, but he couldn't get over his sleeping sisters or their friends. He kicked Dingo. Dude, what if they find it? They're not gonna find it. I've done this trip with my mom three times, and they just make sure you don't have trash bags full of cocaine and wave you through. Chill out. But Dex didn't chill out. He knew there was a very real chance that they could get in very real trouble. He didn't trust Dingo. Even though he was barely a teenager in a country that outlawed porn, he knew that cocaine didn't come in trash bags. Also, he was right. The passenger van pulled up to Border Patrol as the clouds closed in overhead. The day seemed to get immediately colder and darker. 
The agent motioned for Dex's mother to roll down her window and asked where they'd been and what they'd been doing. With a straight face, she told the officer that they'd gone down to New York to see cats and visit friends. They stared at each other for a solid 10 seconds. The officer cleared his throat. <clears> throat> Ma'am, I'm gonna have to ask to look in the car. Sure, his mom said with a sweet smile that got her further in life than it should have. Dex's stomach dropped. He thought he might be sick. He and Dingo's eyes locked as the officer opened up the trunk and rummaged through the belongings. He opened Dex's mom's suitcase. Dex held back the vomit his stomach was threatening. And, uh, whose is this? Dex's mom brought out the smile and added a batting of the eyelashes. Oh, officer, that's mine. Time stood still. The officer gave her a long look. She smiled again for what seemed like a month and a half. Finally, the officer zipped up her suitcase, gave her what could only be described as a wink, and tapped the hood of the van twice. That's fine, ladies. Drive safe. The relief that tsunamied over Dex is something he'd remember decades later. When they finally returned to Toronto, he insisted on carrying all of the bags to his mother and sister's rooms. When he was out of earshot, he opened his mother's suitcase, grabbed the tape, threw it into his room, scratched his sweet pup Mitzi, and went downstairs to watch hockey. He sat on the couch simmering in what one could argue is one of the best teenage feelings ever, and that's the feeling of getting away with it. He was on his absolute best behavior that evening, clearing the table, doing the dishes, and telling his sisters that they looked great in their new jeans. The night dragged on. It felt like his family would never stop gabbing and go to bed. Eventually, the excitement of the day wore off, and the house fell quiet. Finally, it was the moment he'd been waiting for. He crept up the stairs to his room, some sort of Canadian-branded lotion in hand, and as silently as he possibly could, he opened the door. There, on his bed, was Mitzi, sitting in a nest of tape ripped to its guts. The plastic case lay empty on the floor, miles of shiny tape looped and circled around her. Mitzi looked up at Dex with her cockeyed smile, thrilled with her own afternoon. Dex just stood there, paralyzed, staring at his English Bull Terrier. Mitzi let out a happy yelp, having had more fun with that hard-won VHS than Dex ever would have. Thanks for listening. If you still can't sleep, why not do some shopping on the small business links at anxietyaddictsbedtimestories.com and support some really cool people. And don't forget to subscribe and to send us your stories. Sweet dreams. We'll be right back. (laughs) This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Finding great candidates to hire can be like, well, trying to find a needle in a haystack. Sure, you can post your job to some job board, but then all you can do is hope the right person comes along, which is why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash free. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. Its powerful technology identifies people with the right experience and actively invites them to apply to your job. You get qualified candidates fast. So while other companies might deliver a lot of hay, ZipRecruiter finds you what you're looking for. The needle in the haystack. Four out of five employers who post a job in ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. ZipRecruiter. The smartest way to hire. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free. ZipRecruiter.com slash free. 
Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. Build a stone wall? How hard can it be? One stone on top of another... Stones aren't Legos, and you're not a stonemason. Call Beyond Landscape, the take-back-your-weekend people. They'll build that wall and that patio and the steps. You want a pond? Call Beyond. Schedule now. They get busy. Well, not as busy as you. Take back your weekend. Book a fall cleanup, a stone wall, a pond, a patio. Go Beyond. Call Beyond Landscape. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Morgan Walsh and Joe Newman, proud members of the Northampton High School class of 01. Morgan Walsh, direct from Italy. I'd like to know, since you and Joe uh, allege that these stories are true, and I think they are, actually, for the most part, uh, where do they come from, and do any come from Northampton? With the names well, changed to protect the guilty. <laughs> so ultimately, we got into this for the creative part of it, and we get our stories on our website. Um, there is a contact form, and all we need from from our listeners are a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, three sentences. It's completely anonymous, and. Um, <laughs> And we have so much fun writing them and reading them. Uh, and we really, really encourage anybody with a great story uh, to go on anxietyaddictsbedtimestories.com. And you can go right under submit my story. Again, completely anonymous. And we will fill in the blanks, make it fun, and yeah, help, help people get to sleep. Uh, anxiety addicts, you want to go through that? What do we do to find you? You can go. Oh, you mean writing it all out? No. Where do we where do we where do we find this website? Do it again. So you can go on Google and type in www.anxietyaddictsbedtimestories.com. Anxietyaddictsbedtimestories.com. And back to my question, uh, without trying to reveal anyone's anonymity, uh, are any of these stories from Northampton? 
So yes, the stories, there are a lot, lot of stories from Northampton. One in particular um, is a fantastic one to listen to. It's called, Uh-Oh, Where's Yolanda? Um, <laughs> Joe did an amazing, amazing job writing this story. Um, I happen to be in it. It won't be a surprise because unfortunately, Joe did not change my name in that story. Um, but it's a very, very funny story. And uh, there's a few other ones. I won't say which ones they are because the people's names are changed in it. Um, so, but there's a lot of great stories about Northampton, Western Massachusetts, uh, Boston. Yeah, a lot of New England stories. And growing up here and, you know, sort of the, the vibe of middle school and Northampton High School and all the things that are very specific to, to this little area right here. You want to give us an outline uh, of the Yolanda story? <laughs> I could probably do the proper outline, seeing as um, I was the only one fully awake for the, the whole evening. But in high school, uh, Joe and I played on the lacrosse team. Uh, JV, well, I was on JV. We weren't very good, and we were kind of trying to suck up to the coach. Okay, yeah, moving and- right along here. <laughs> There was a wonderful exchange student. Um, uh, Her name was Yolanda, and we had befriended her and invited uh, her out to one of the most amazing nights uh, in Northampton from our childhood that we can remember called Illumination Night, Smith College. Um, I'm not sure if they still do it, but uh, they they do, and it was so beautiful. And it was springtime, and we just kind of felt free, and we were sleeping over at an unnamed uh, house, (laughs) <laughs> unnamed parents were supposed to be responsible for us and um and we had a sleepover and yolanda uh had us she told us it wasn't a proper sleepover unless we took shots of tequila which i would like to say we had never done before ever <laughs> um i did not partake in the festivities I can say this because my name's used in the thing. Everybody else did. It became a very ugly scene in uh, the not mentioned person's basement. Um, But everybody was okay. I was the mama bear that night, took care, made sure everybody was okay. But when we all woke up in the morning, we couldn't find Yolanda. (laughs) And I won't say anything else. (laughs) Well, I would like to say that all of these stories, no matter how cringy or embarrassing or um, trying they are for the person involved, they all have happy endings. This is true. Very happy endings. Okay. And the most surprising story that you guys have received on your website, perhaps? that you've turned into a bedtime story for adults? Oh, God. What about the one? uh, There's one where this girl is so, has the biggest crush on this guy, and it's because she's obsessed with the way he smells. And then it, that's a real thing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I I really, on another day, I would like to interview Mr. Newman, because you sent your daughter to one of the finest theater schools on the globe and now she gets to write about 12 year olds who are thwarted in their masturbatory intents and <laughs> uh and people losing uh visiting friends it's just a wonderful thing that you've done joe i really feel like i'm using my education to the extent that <laughs> nyu um, yeah. yeah i think i think I, I i'm a pride and joy to anyone who's who's just ever encountered morgan too i mean we are we're just killing it out here <laughs> (laughs) 
<laughs> um, a surprising story. So this girl is making out with this guy. It turns out that she's crazy allergic to his laundry detergent. And she has to use an EpiPen because her throat's closing up in the middle of the movie theater and she can't breathe. And she realizes it's this guy she's in love with. And she's running out of the movie theater saying, stay away from me, stay away from me. And this guy doesn't know what's happening. He's just been kissing her. He chases her out. A couple of dads see what's happening. They think that it's something bad. Commandeer the boy. If I had a nickel for every time a girl told me that's what was going on. I have a, does Dan, do you ever tweak a story just slightly in order to make it even funnier than it is? Oh, absolutely. And that what, but what's absolutely. nice about that is that there's no pressure on the people who are submitting the stories to make it funny. We got that. Oh, okay. We, we got that. All right. One more time. Where do we go to find these stories? Morgan. So <laughs> www.anxietyaddictsbedtimestories.com. And, and be, you will find us there. And okay, you can and, follow and, us on social media as well. And because we're yeah. not we're not engaged in any kind of nepotism here, Joe, why don't you see if you can tell the website too, so people can find it? <laughs> oh wow, thank you for asking, no, me, Mr. Newman. Oh, that's really nothing. This well, really. it is www.anxietyaddictsbedtimestories.com, and you can find us on most of the social medias except for the ones we ignore. <laughs> Joe Newman and one Morgan Walsh. Thank you. And both. the letter N. And the letter Thank N. You so <laughs> Thank you all so very much, particularly the letter N. <laughs> Thank you, Dad. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. For two years, a number of school staff members in the Amherst Pelham School District have been working directly with children without having gone through the proper background checks. The oversight places the school in violation of state law. In a statement, Interim Superintendent Doug Slaughter and other school administrators said there is no reason to believe any students were ever in danger. The oversight was discovered during an audit of internal documents, according to town manager Paul Bockelman. It's very disturbing, and I know the acting superintendent is working to correct that, but that's something that needs to be fixed pronto. Massachusetts law requires that school districts review state criminal records every three years. And since last spring, school districts must review information from the state sex offender registry. The Coca-Cola bottling plant is sticking around Northampton for a little while longer. The company planned to close its Northampton plant in the summer of 2023, but now says they plan to stay open through the first quarter of 2024. The closing is a big loss for the city as the plant makes up a quarter of all water and sewer revenue. Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Shera says the delay is not an indication the company may stay in Northampton, as the real estate marketing team is actively looking for buyers for the property. The East Hampton City Council is trying to lower the speed limit on Northampton Street. The council petitioned the state to reduce the speed limit by 10 miles per hour. This follows a crash last August in which two pedestrians were killed. City engineer Dan Murphy is proposing a speed limit of 25 miles per hour between West Street and Florence Road, 30 miles per hour between Florence Road and Abishan Hardware, and 35 miles per hour from Abishan to the city line in Northampton. For today, look for sunshine and warm temperatures, high 74 to 78. For tonight, it'll be mostly clear. Some areas of patchy fog. Overnight lows around 50. And the other for Tuesday, mostly sunny. Highs around 80. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. 
It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. I'm living the life that I lived before I started having knee pain 10 years ago. Meet Julie, a woman who makes the most of every moment in life. But over the last years, those moments were filled with agonizing pain until she discovered QC Kinetics. Finally, the pain got so bad that people around me are like, oh, when are you getting your knee replaced? I was walking, hobbling. I listened to my last QC Kinetics commercial and I said, I'm done. I got to find out about this. What Julie found out was QC Kinetics treats osteoarthritis with regenerative therapies taking your body's own healing properties and concentrating them in the areas where you feel pain, helping heal and restore those damaged areas. No harmful steroids, surgery, or downtime. It changed how I'm living. I'm able to do the things that I wasn't able to do for a long time. Get back your life before the pain. Call QC Kinetics now for your free consultation. Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Well, if you live in western Massachusetts, you probably are aware that there is a bit of a kerfuffle going on about the Main Street Northampton redesign. Uh, okay, actually a matter of serious consideration here in the city. And we have with us today Carolyn Mish, who's the Director of Planning for the City of Northampton, and the Mayor, Gina Louise Scherer. Let's turn to the overview, and then we're going to get to the specific objections that have been raised and that are being raised with regard to the Main Street redesign. Let me start with you, if I might, Carolyn Mish. Tell us what the Main Street redesign is. What does it do? Um, good morning, and thanks for having us on. Uh, Picture Main Street is about um, addressing uh, long-standing concerns over safety, accessibility for all users, um, increasing vibrancy and adjusting to the new economic reality for our downtown, Northampton, and um, creating a space that will be... Um, created an experiential um, downtown, a community outdoor space for our residents. Which and sounds terrific. I must mean that everyone, how could anyone object to that answer? Nobody could object to that. The problem is that, well, the devil is always in the details. So the question is, what is the plan? Let me go to the mayor, Madam Mayor. Good morning. Ooh. Great to be with you. I'm delighted to talk about the Main Street redesign. Um, so this, you know, this is a plan that has been worked on for many, many years. 
Um, it's, you know, sort of initial conversations go back how far, Carolyn? Um, 20 years, yeah. early t 2000s, when we um, knew there was a push. When for we it. were all six years old. <laughs> yes. oh, yeah, got it. Exactly. Um, so this is something that's been in the works and talked about uh, for many years. And then uh, for the last three or four years, far more intensely, it's been talked about. And there's been many, many public meetings. It's been before our subcommittees. Um, and then there have been other public meetings around it. So it's been a really big community discussion. Actually, right before, uh, well, January before the pandemic, um, there was a massive meeting. It's the biggest meeting I've ever seen um, for a, a city discussion um, happened. And I saw people flood into this meeting who I'd never seen come to a public meeting, a, you know, a city meeting before, who were interested in talking about how we can revitalize Main Street and what we can do. Okay. Describe briefly for us what is the design? What will it be when it's finished? What's the what is what is envisioned? Uh, well, so one of the things that makes this an exciting project, but also um, a very detailed project, is that it it encompasses a very long um, a stretch of Main Street, right? So we're talking about everyone's favorite, and I'm saying this sarcastically, intersection that's up by State and Main and South. Um, in West, right? So there's that crazy intersection. So it goes from around there all the way past the railroad bridge to Holly and Market Street. So it's that whole long stretch encompasses this project. Um, and it, it, there are a bunch of different components to it. So um, it is a good chunk of Main Street, sort of what we're going to, we call Upper Main, Middle Main, and Lower Main. So Upper Main and Lower Main are largely two lanes each way with parallel parking. Um, this sort of middle section has angled parking and has more has more space than two lanes, but isn't demarcated, right? So people kind of zoom in and out and they kind of, um, one of the things that causes a lot of issues with Main Street, both with safety, and we should talk, like safety is the primary reason that we're doing this project and the reason that the state has prioritized this project. We have one of the highest crash rates in the entire Commonwealth in our downtown. So, the fact that people don't quite know how many lanes there are and they kind of zip in and out and go from two to three-ish to four-ish to back down to two, um, while there's also this angled parking where people are pulling out um, and they can't see is one of the main reasons that we have a big safety issue. So it's gonna make that uniform with the central turning lane, which will be, um, I think will really help traffic flow. And these are some of the things that we can get into, the details of how traffic flows, which are sometimes maybe a little bit counterintuitive um, but if you kind of think about it or if you know the data behind it, you understand that if you have um, <clears throat> clearer lanes, even if you have less lanes, your traffic is going to flow um, faster and, and more smoothly. So uh, it makes wider. So I could, there's so many components to it. So the sidewalks become wider. So we're taking more of the space. One of the things that we have um, loved the last few years and one of the kind of the bright spots that came out of the pandemic was outdoor dining. And so this is something that's been proven for Northampton as um, an economic driver, is something that people really love. They love the feeling of it. So what we're going to do is take some of that space. Um, instead of having outdoor dining being these parking spaces, it's actually going to be on the sidewalk. It's going to be like sidewalk cafe feeling, um, which I think will really help the vibrancy and sort of the, that beautiful feeling you get in Northampton. Um, very importantly, there's we're going to make everything that we touch has to become ADA compliant, right? So we're going to make... Um, a lot of these these places that are really challenging for folks who have mobility issues, um, they're, they're, it's going to be 
a smoother transition from sidewalk um, to street and then on the sidewalks and also just more space for people to be together so people can be traveling together down the sidewalk instead of always kind of moving single file, particularly if you're in a wheelchair. Um, there's not really enough space for you to be with a companion um, in some areas. So, uh, Madam Mayor, I am all in favor of greater safety, and I'm happy to have, see, hear that and know about that as, as a one of the drivers, one of the impetus for the Main Street redesign. It also strikes me as really important, since we're going to live with this for the next goodness knows how many decades, that anticipating what Northampton's downtown will be for decades to come is a crucial part of it. And it seems to me that a crucial part of this is the pedestrian traffic mm -hmm. and something that looks like an outdoor, I hate to use the word mall, but with our own uh, small businesses being the components of it. And it reminds me in some ways of the uh, outside walking mall in Brattleboro or Boulder, Colorado. I mean, that's what I kind of envision here. And I'm wondering whether that is part of this vision to increase pedestrian traffic so that downtown becomes an experience, a place where people want to be and want to go from a movie to a, uh, uh, to a show, to a different kind of venue, to a, uh, a restaurant, to do some shopping, to go past stores and stop in stores they might not otherwise stop. Is that part of this theory? Oh, absolutely. It's a critical part of this project is, you know, we, as Carolyn said, how we do things has changed, how we buy things has changed, but we still have a remarkable downtown that we need to support. And so what we need to do is find ways to bring people downtown, find experiences for people, give, get people to have that feeling that makes them wanna be downtown and makes them wanna stay downtown and spend some time, explore that new shop, try that new restaurant. So this, this is a critical part of this project is creating more space for people on sidewalks, little sort of areas where people can gather. Um, and that is, you know, I, I think that's one of the main things that we have to do right now for our economy, but also going forward. Okay, so if that is true, and this gets me to one of the main criticisms that have been, been leveled recently at the, at the project, why do we need bike lanes in both directions? Uh, which take up a huge amount of space that could otherwise be used for larger, broader sidewalks. Why do we need those two bike, a bike lane in each direction through the middle of downtown, particularly given that the bike lanes circumvent downtown? And that's my question. Why do bikes need to drive through, ride through downtown? So first of all, bikes already do go through downtown, and they legally have the same right to be on Main Street as cars do. Um, and cars legally have to give them four feet of space. But we know that that doesn't always happen. And there are a great deal of people who actually do bike through downtown um, or bike to downtown. You know, one of the things that I've said is I want people to bike into downtown, not around downtown. We are, we're in no way are we trying to say you can't drive downtown. If you need to drive downtown, if you want to drive downtown, absolutely. We know from our multiple parking studies there's enough parking for you if you want to come downtown. If you need accessible spaces, there will be more spaces than there previously were or there are. But we also want to encourage people to walk downtown or bike downtown if they can. There are a lot of people who can. 
And a lot of people who want to do that. And we get tons of feedback from people who say, you know, I've just never felt safe biking downtown, but I absolutely would if I had a dedicated way to do it. Well, if I could ask, just follow up on that, Carolyn Mish. So my understanding is that the bike lanes are going to be between the sidewalk, the curb, and where cars are going to be parallel parking. Some people are not great parallel parkers. And one of the criticisms I've heard is that it's dangerous for the bikers. What say you to that? Um, well, I will say that the there there are um, the the course of the conversation uh, about where to put that separated bike lane and how to do it um, was part of a public process where we heard feedback from a majority of the respondents that they wanted a separated bike lane out of the line of traffic with cars, and so that's how we came to this um, uh, location between the sidewalk and the parked cars. There's still going to be a buffer space between the parallel parking cars and the angled parking cars uh, between that and the bike lane. And um, because there will be a separated bike lane, the bike lane will be um, uh, elevated a little bit, slightly above grade. So uh, drivers, just like w drivers who get out of their parallel parking spaces, have to open the door and peek to see if there's a car coming on one side. They'll have to do the same thing on the other, but there will still be a separated buffer. When you um, say buffer, you, is that like a barrier, a physical barrier? A, a space, a ba basically space. a strip of um, plaza, two to, two to three feet, depending on the location. So there is that um, bit of extra... Um, safety um, parameter that's built in. Um, but I'd like to go back to a comment you made, um, Bill, about this. Why can't, why is there a bike lane instead of allocating that to sidewalk space? Yes. And um, the criticisms that we've heard mostly are, why not put that back to car space, yeah, not I, to I, sidewalk I, space? Yeah, which, and, which I think is really misplaced, and yeah, we can go into that. Yeah. But but I, I'd like to know about that because it is foot traffic, I think, that is going to make downtown the experience, that is going to make the stores thrive. More people downtown doing more things. And I think, personally, that involves people uh, uh, being able to use large, wide sidewalks. So talk to me. So we are increasing the width of the sidewalk. And in fact, this whole project is about reallocating that space away from just solely on cars and to um, cyclists, pedestrians, uh, rollers. Um, so the sidewalk space is expanding. But again, going back to that conversation about the fact that we um, need to accommodate all modes of um, traffic on Main Street, so bicyclists, vehicles, pedestrians, whoever's coming. And so the community has said we want that in a separated space. And so whether it's going to be a striped bike lane or a separated bike lane, that was always going to be part of the project because we're planning for everyone who uses the network. Uh, this is Dan. Uh, a question I also had about the process of, of, build, of doing this, actual construction, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what the town, the city can do to mitigate the disruptions that are bound to happen for at least a year, probably two years, really, in the construction process of all of this? Because uh, heard, I've heard some complaints from businesses that now they're going to you know, lose customers during this reorganization and things like that. Yeah, that's actually something that I'm really excited to get to a place where we can start to really talk about this. So 
once we start to get a schedule from um, from MassDOT, we um, have big plans on how we can, one, communication is key, right? So how we're going to communicate sort of long-term, medium, and then daily with folks about what the situation is on Main Street at that time. And if there are any detours, what that's going to look like. We want to make sure that we have very clear communication at all times. But we, you know, I've already been talking to the Chamber and DNA and Historic Northampton, and we've been starting to brainstorm and come up with ideas, looking at what other cities have done as well during these kind of projects, of how can we um, just do a, a, a really good job of, of creating... Um, opportunities to support businesses during this time. So whether it's, you know, coming up with um, plans to have like a punch card for supporting businesses or offering things or, you know, figuring out um, celebratory events to drive people downtown during, um, during this time, finding ways, sort of educational opportunities during this time. There are a million ideas that is, I think what my team um, is really excited to talk about right now is, is you know, we saw during the pandemic that we are really good at pulling together and supporting our businesses. And this will be another opportunity to do that. And I have incredible faith in our community that we can come together and, you know, the, this will be done in sections so that we can come together and support each section at, at its time that it's in sort of its biggest uh, construction moment. Um, to support those businesses and and keep downtown thriving during and, it. And just one quick follow-up. Yeah. What's the total cost about all of this? Has that been done, or is that too difficult to judge right now? For the for the project? For the project in its entirety, yeah. Um, we're at $21 million, and so $19 million is from MassDOT. And then we also... Department want, of Transportation. Thank you. Massachusetts Department of Transportation. Um, and, and again, they're investing because they've identified that this is a really unsafe location in their commonwealth. Um, and then we there's some infrastructure underneath the, the road that we have to deal with. Um, it's, you know, these are, we have sewer pipes that are over 100 years old. There's, there's stuff that's really important that needs to be upgraded. Um, and this is a remarkable opportunity to do that. If we had to take on that construction part just on our own, it would be so much more. So the fact that MassDOT is opening up the street anyway, and then we can get to that, um, all the infrastructure that's underground and replace it, this is a huge savings for the city. So, wow, okay. I just wanted to say 19 of the 21 million would be MassDOT. Correct. Wow. Yes, this is largely a state-funded project. Largely state-funded. We are speaking with the mayor of Northampton, Gina Louise Carolyn Mish, who is the director of planning for the city. When we come back, we are going to raise the question what about a test run? Why can't we address that and these suggestions and criticisms by having a test run? And also, what's going to happen during snow emergencies? And is there enough room for ambulances and emergency vehicles? We'll get to that right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP.
Today and every day, millions of people do business with co-ops, food co-ops, credit unions, workers co-ops, energy co-ops, farmer co-ops, go co-op, and together we can build resilient, inclusive communities. Real Pickles is a worker cooperative in Greenfield, producing organic, raw, and fermented vegetables. Pickles, sauerkraut, kimchi, and more sourced from Northeast Family Farms. Find Real Pickles in the refrigerated section at local markets and at realpickles.com. Hello, this is Patrick Kaling, Sheriff of Hampshire County. This year, my office received the prestigious Fatherhood Award from the Children's Trust, a state child abuse prevention agency, for our work with the Nurturing Fathers Program. We are proud of our partnership with the Children's Trust and firmly believe that strong, safe families help build strong, safe communities. If you're interested in joining our award-winning team, visit our website, HampshireSheriffs.com, submit an application online, or call and ask for our HR department. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with the mayor of Northampton, Gina Louise Shera, and Carolyn Mish, who is the director of planning. We're talking about the Main Street redesign. Tell me quickly, if you could, please, how does this plan accommodate emergency vehicles and snow removal? Sure. So um, emergency vehicles, you know, of course, it, it has been tested for emergency vehicles. Um, MassDOT can't accept plans that don't accommodate emergency vehicles. It's been tested by our own vehicles. Um, and actually, this plan, which now has a that center third turning lane, um, will be very helpful for emergency vehicles. So when people will move off to this, instead of sort of the chaos where you don't know how many lanes there are, you may have multiple cars sort of stacked up now. You'll have clear lanes. People will move to the side, and then there'll be the center lane down the front, where as long as people are following the law and moving over for emergency vehicles, there will be a very clear path for um, an ambulance or a fire truck. And how does that work, or how would that work with snow removal? We have these piles of snow. Well, maybe we won't with climate change. We won't have them in the future, but just in case we do, what about the piles of snow on Main Street? So we're a very unusual community. Most places don't pile their snow in the middle of the street. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> so everyone else manages to to do this and move it somewhere else. So yes, we will. And and the snow actually. Um, doesn't necessarily stay in the middle of the street. It gets picked up and moved. So we will be moving the snow to another location where it will be dumped, like okay. every other new, you know place that has snow does. Could just, you go to? I'm sorry. I was gonna, can I add something Please. as well? So we have um, other examples in downtown Northampton where there are two lane streets, no center turn lane. Um, Pleasant Street, for example, and King Street, just um, on either side of Main Street where there is no center turn lane for emergency vehicles, and emergency vehicles seem to get through just fine on those sections, and the same goes with the snow removal. Okay, let me ask you quickly, and it's not fair in some ways to make it quick, but I'd like to know, why not have a trial run? Madam Mayor? Sure, so it's, 
it's not a fast answer except to say that it's as I've, I, I hope we've explained, it's a very large, complicated project, right? It involves many different intersections. It involves changes in road width. It involves changes in road geometry. It involves changes in signaling. Um, it involves uh, making short, much shorter um, crosswalks. So there, there's so many components to it that there would be no way to do a comprehensive test of this, except that we have, you know, we have um, science and modeling and data that tells us that it'll work. Plus, we have examples in other communities um, where this has worked. So to be able to do all of those components would involve a huge amounts of um, bringing in barricades and all of these different things that are just would take a great deal of money um, and also just wouldn't give a real test of what this is going to be like. But we know from elsewhere that this is a, something that's going to really be um, quite transformative for Northampton. And I understand that people, you know, might have to have a little bit of faith. But again, I have faith in Northampton and, and I think um, everyone needs to have faith that we have done an amazing amount of work on this project and it's going to be truly remarkable. So the quick answer to that question question is it can't be done realistically can't be recreate you can't create that realistically you can't do a comprehensive job of recreating it with the amount that's involved in this project we're going to leave it there we've been speaking with the mayor of northampton jean louis shara and the director of planning carolyn mish thank you both so very much we look forward to continuing this conversation <laughs> thank you anytime show. thank you this is talk the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg on whmp our school communities thrive when they address students, families, and educators' well-being. That's why the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education offers schools and districts the tools to meet these needs through our Office of Student and Family Supports. Caring for each other, growing together, back to school, better. Visit doe.mass.edu slash growing together. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Are you or someone you know addicted to drugs? Narcotics Anonymous can help. NA has been helping addicts since 1953. We are recovering addicts who meet regularly to help each other stay clean. We offer meetings and services online and in person. To find one of our meetings or to get information on what services are offered, visit www.westernmassna.org or call us at 1-866-NA-HELP-YOU. That's 1-866-624-3000. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And this is First Monday. This is when the justices of the United States Supreme Court take the bench for the first time since late June, and swirling around them is a major question, which is uh, how far will they bend the rule of law in order to continue their right-wing ideological march um, that seems unrelenting, and uh, it's something that perplexes all of us except... It is First Monday, and we have with us law professor Bruce Miller, longtime constitutional scholar from Western New England University uh, School of Law. And hello to you, Bruce. Hey, Buzz. I'm no less perplexed than you are, for sure. <laughs> well, okay. That was our show for the day. Yeah. <laughs> but seriously, how far will they bend to the right? Uh, 
that uh, I guess is the is the question, and uh, it, it's uh, it's raised uh, in in uh, the the National Paper of Record, the New York Times this morning, and there are I think two general areas uh, in which we're going to see this idea tested. Uh, one uh, is is abortion rights, where uh, the the infamous decision uh, of the of the Fifth Circuit uh, uh, curbing the ability of the Food and Drug Administration to approve mifepristone, or RU486, as, a, as a, an abortion-inducing drug is at stake. Um, there's far more than just abortion rights at issue in that case, because the ground for the Fifth Circuit's decision restricting the F FDA is that, is that the judges know better than the FDA does what is a safe and effective drug. Notwithstanding the decades of proof that we have that it's safe. And so what's at issue here uh, is, of course, women's reproductive freedom. Um, but also, uh, right underneath that is the very idea of expertise. That is that we can have an agency that we, the people, have created, and we've given that agency the job to supervise the pharmaceutical industry, to make sure that the drugs they put on the market are safe and effective. And we've got the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals saying, well, well, maybe not. Maybe if we think uh, that a drug that they've declared to be safe and effective is not, our judgment counts rather than the agency's judgment. So Carol Rose pointed out right here last Carol week. Carol Rose, the executive director of the ACLU uh, of Massachusetts. What a colossal threat this, this case uh, pr presents uh, to the, the very idea of regulating capital, regulating corporations. So we have this confluence of an attack on reproductive rights and attack on the very idea of, of, uh, of, of limiting. Uh, Bruce, what, what the Fifth Circuit is saying yep. is not quite what you, the way you put it, which is the reality of the situation, yeah, yeah, yeah. to be sure. Yeah. But the Fifth Circuit says, no, wait a second. Congress could tell the FDA, as long as it specifically said, here, I want you to rule on this drug and a thousand other drugs and do That's this right. and do that and have a bill that is 14 million pages long. It's not how laws are written. Well, no, that's right. That's right. And, and, and that's what they're saying, which is Congress has to be more specific in a situation where it's impossible to do it. Yes, uh, this is this is another strand of uh, of the attack on regulatory power, which is the idea that Congress has to have anticipated all of the questions. Uh, in, in advance and specifically directed how the agencies are to answer them. Right. I mean, that's, somehow that's something we wouldn't want Congress to try to do. And it's at odds with, with the very idea of changing conditions, changing problems, and the need to have uh, people who have some idea of what they're doing uh, on, on the watch to make sure that our government can respond appropriately. Right, but this is a way in which this Supreme Court can dismantle the Environmental Protection Agency, dismantle all, the federal drug agency, dismantle the, everything that keeps us safe and that makes the, America function. All of the uh, agencies are, are, are at issue. Um, and, and we can tell this uh, not just by looking um, at, at, the, at, at the Mifepristone case, but at the entire, what you might call, administrative agency or administrative law docket that is uh, uh, in, in there for the court, uh, that the court has decided to take on 
this time. There's a whole series of cases that in one way or another, Bill, get at the issue that, that, you, are, that you are talking about. We have a case uh, involving ordinary securities fraud, something that our, our federal government through the Securities and Exchange Commission has been regulating for nearly 100 years. And right, something, something that in years past we'd say, well, there is a snoozy little case we don't have to pay much exactly, attention to, except... Exactly. Except, except uh, what the Fifth Circuit has done is said, you can't find somebody for securities fraud, number one, without giving them a trial by jury in the agency. The very idea of a separate agency adjudicative proceeding that is outside of court and that administers fines, that is not criminal in the, in the, in the kind of punishment that it administers, oh no, you can't do that. It's got to be a trial by jury. If that's true for the SEC, that's true for every agency. Secondly, the administrative law judges who decide SEC cases and agency cases across the entire spectrum um, uh, uh, cannot be protected from presidential removal. The ALJs can all be fired by the president. Administrative law judges. Uh, the administrative law judges can all be fired by the president. This is sort of an example of this unitary executive idea, which is in a strange way combines this notion that the agencies can't do very much, but what they can do has to remain entirely under the personal control of the President of the United States. Right, so someone who calls himself and is, has the title judge, administrative law judge, actually will be a political appointment des yes. designated to carry out exactly. President Trump's agenda. That's exactly the idea be behind, behind this. And the third, this is like a triple header, all in this garden variety SEC case, is, is that really fundamentally your point, Bill, Congress can't give to the Securities and Exchange Commission the power to decide what kind of conduct is fraudulent. Congress has to say so in detail in the statute, the law it passes itself. And you, Professor Bruce Miller, have described for us uh, before about this major question yep. doctrine which this court has invented out of little pieces of cloth. It claims that it's a whole cloth invention and it isn't. Um, and during that time, we talked about the fact that, well, Congress, Congress created these two, what we call enabling acts. Yes. They create these agencies. They give them jurisdiction. Yeah. They talk about the scope of their jurisdiction. They give them regulatory authority to make it happen. And they invest in the agencies, the trust that they're going to be hiring well, experts within these realms to actually figure out what people should and shouldn't do. Exactly. It's more than trust. I mean, Congress also, in, in really a wonderful statute passed in the late 1940s called the Administrative Procedure Act, passed a law that is designed to regulate the agencies as a whole. It requires them to provide notice in, to the public whenever they make a rule, to accept comments. It sets up the system of administrative law judges with judicial review of their decisions. Um, it's, it's a wonderful statute that makes sure that the agencies themselves uh, act lawfully. And, and uh, you know, we, we, we lawyers, as you, as you guys know, learn about this uh, in law school, that there's this, this really good system established uh, in order to have these agencies protect the public in the way we expect them to, but do so in a way that is consistent with our rule of law values. And that's my question for you, Bruce Miller. As we begin this, this is first Monday, those justices will be taking their benches today. 
Um, how threatened is what we call the rule of law? How much is it endangered by this drift towards ideological preference over jurisprudential independence? Yeah, you know, if I had a solid answer to, 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 that, to that question, um, I would have probably done something very different with, 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 with my life. Because Bruce Miller for president. Placed in, placed, placed in charge of something. Um, I don't know. Uh, I really don't know. It does seem to me un, unprecedented because these, these, these decisions from the Fifth Circuit that the Supreme Court is now going to review are themselves so sweeping, so ambitious, and so radical uh, that they would have been un, unimaginable before Trump became president. All of these decisions were written by Trump-appointed judges. We've got the abortion case. We have the SEC case. We have another case that attacks the existence of the Consumer Protection Bureau, Elizabeth Warren's uh, wonderfully cre created uh, agency. Same basic theories here. Yeah, Bill, you were. Yeah, I, I want to know what if if these cases from the Fifth Circuit yep. are upheld by the Supreme Court, what is left of trying to protect any of us from the rapacious corporations well, they can pollute whatever they want they can put out on the market what um what uh i'm sorry I, I don't want to go too far here but what's left to protect us the the aim uh, as as i think openly announced by some of the leading lights of the federalist society the organization that sort of groomed and promoted all these judges is to restore the united states to the political regime that we had in roughly 1898 uh, when William McKinley was president, we didn't have any federal agencies. We didn't have any federal taxes. Uh, we had a gilded age of, of unchecked, rapacious capital. Uh, that's the aim, um, and I think it's a serious aim. Uh, I, I think there's some chance that it's, that it's realized. That is, if, if, if you imagine all of these cases going the wrong way all at once in, in this year, the, the answer, I think, is nothing. Uh, we don't have we don't have anything left, and and more fundamentally, we will have lost our ability as a people to fashion institutions that can protect us, because the Supreme Court will have taken it away by saying it's it's un unconstitutional. Among the many gorillas in the room, is the swirl of ethical questions around this Supreme Court, and as a result, the possibility that the governed, the people who are expected to abide by the law that's laid down by this court in its interpretation of the Constitution, is people are being asked to believe in rulings from a court which uh, allegations of corruption and ethical indifference are swirling. As we begin this new session, do you think that's a factor? I do think that's a factor. I think it's a, it's a, it's a major uh, factor, and it's, it's one that I think the Chief Justice has uh, top of mind. Uh, Roberts, politically, uh, is, is probably not unsympathetic to many of these goals, but it's clear that he also cares about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, and that that is at least a competing value for him. And he knows that the court's legitimacy depends uh, on the public's willingness to accept um, its, its decisions. 
we have been through times before when that legitimacy was was questioned. I think we're at the beginning of one now. So where is he? Uh, Why isn't he speaking? Well, he, maybe. Well, he's inclined. He's inclined to speak through his opinions. Um, it would be it would be nice if if he would uh, use that that pulpit uh, from time to time that he has as as uh, other other chief justices have uh, before him. Uh, but I do, I do think that uh, his tendency uh, will be not to go as far as, as justices like Thomas uh, and Alito would go. I think they're on board for the full uh, 1898 program here, and, and Roberts probably um, is not. So I, I, I think it's very hard to predict how these, how these cases are, are going to go just because the decisions that, that the court is looking at are themselves so extreme. There was an old adage that the Supreme Court follows the election returns. In the instance of its abortion decision, its decision to repeal the constitutional right to abortion, it seems to me that the Supreme Court was tone deaf and, in fact, did not understand and didn't care about what the voters, what the country thinks We'll discuss that in just a minute. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. At Greenfield Savings Bank, one of the things we love about living in the Valley is all the locally grown food that's available here. For more than 25 years, a local nonprofit called CESA, which stands for Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture, has been promoting locally grown food and supporting farms, farmers markets, and food businesses in our Valley. And to support CESA's mission, Greenfield Savings Bank is giving new customers a CESA canvas tote bag as a thank you gift when they open a new free GSB checking account. There are no monthly fees, no transaction fees, and you get free online banking, free e-statements, free debit card, and free GSB mobile app, including depositing checks from your mobile device. Our existing customers can also get a CISA Canvas tote bag when they enroll in GSB's free mobile banking or sign up for e-statements. So, join GSB and show your support for locally grown food and local banking. Get your CISA Canvas tote bag thank you gift from Greenfield Savings Bank. See bank or visit greenfieldsavings.com for full details. Member FDIC, member DIF. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. 
And we are back continuing our conversation about first Monday when the United States Supreme Court justices uh, begin the new session for the court. And we're speaking with a uh, constitutional scholar and professor emeritus of law, Bruce Miller. Bruce, we've been uh, talking about the major questions doctrine, but there are also some gun cases that are coming up before the United States Supreme Court. Uh, what can you tell us about those cases? Well, we've, this is another one uh, from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the, for the Fifth Circuit, which, you know, ironically, given that court's history, has now become the most conservative court maybe in, in the history of the United States. It was once the safe place in the federal court system for the civil rights movement during the late 50s and early 1960s, how far uh, that court has, has fallen. There's a case out of the Fifth Circuit called uh, Rahimi in which that court held unconstitutional a federal law that prohibits uh, people with domestic violence temporary restraining orders against them from owning and, and possessing guns. And the Fifth Circuit has held that statute to be a, a, an unconstitutional violation of the Second Amendment. Uh, the Fifth Circuit relied for that decision very heavily on Justice Thomas's opinion a year ago in a case called Bruin, which held remarkably that the only reasons that the government can use to restrain firearms use, possession, anything, are reasons that would have been known to the framers of the Constitution in 1787. That is, if something was not perceived as a problem that needs to be addressed in 1787, it never can be. This also goes way beyond what's immediately at issue, firearms rights. This is a profound attack on democracy itself. If the Constitution has a point, it is that we, the people, can establish a more perfect union by passing laws that respond to changing needs in changing times. When it comes to firearms, the Supreme Court has already held that that principle does not apply. If the framers didn't know about it, and of course domestic violence was, was no doubt as rampant then as it remains today, but it wasn't perceived as a social category. And since it was unknown to the framers as a way of organizing their world, we cannot take the insights that we, that we like to think we have and apply them today uh, to make for a better society. Firearms are simply off limits to regulation and so, are unique in this respect. That question is back in front of the court now with respect to domestic violence. And I think, I think it's, it's uh, you know, you guys might disagree. Um, this one, I, I, I think it's fairly easy uh, to predict the outcome. That is, I don't, I, I don't see any way that Rahimi's conviction can be sustained uh, by any court without revisiting this fundamental idea that Justice Thomas put in front of us uh, a, a year ago. And that is that if a reason for restricting firearms was not known to the framers in 1787, it is forever prevented from being considered by anybody thereafter. So I can fire my bazooka in next to the school, the elementary school, because it didn't say in the Constitution they didn't know about bazookas, right? Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. 
Well, except that the Supreme Court has indicated that uh, modern firearms have analogs, historic analogs, and when they do, that they are subject to, to regulation. So, uh, that's true. That's true. Um, I, I don't know if they're going to be prepared to find some uh, uh, then contemporary analog for domestic violence, or as was raised by by the new indictment of Hunter Biden, uh, uh, drug use um, while possessing uh, a gun. Uh, I just, I just don't know. I think, I think this doctrine that they've created does limit them in some ways. That is, I think it's a doctrine that has power, and some doctrines have more power than others to constrain future cases. This one is so bad that I think it constrains a whole lot of future cases. Yeah, and I think the Supreme Court, again, because the Supreme Court does follow election returns, uh, does not want to appear to be totally out of line with what the country thinks. And this guy, Rahimi, is a walking ad for someone who should never have a gun. You wouldn't trust this guy with a toothpick or, or uh, really, he, he is, if anyone shouldn't have a gun, it's this guy. And this Supreme Court, I think, is not going to want to declare that all of the domestic violence laws that exist in 43 states are unconstitutional. They're just not going to want to do that. So what they can do, and the part that scares me about this case, is it's really like a blank whiteboard. They can write anything they want and say, well, here's the exception, the really narrow exception. But everyone else can carry a gun, open carry, concealed carry, have at it, America. We've just given you the right to carry guns everywhere. And they could rule against Rahimi. So the headlines are domestic violence laws upheld where what they really do is say, go at it, have the guns whenever you want, almost everywhere you want, except maybe courthouses, because we're concerned about that. Well, I, I, guess, I guess we differ here only in one small way. I think, I think uh, Rahimi's going to get off, and you think the best case scenario is that he doesn't, and he's the exception that proves the rule. If that's our best case scenario, yours, uh, we are in some serious trouble, and, and in some ways we are back to the meaning of this idea of, of legitimacy. And I think it's true that the, uh, the court's, uh, the court's uh, uh, opinion in Dobbs on, on abortion uh, was broadly not acceptable to the public. I, I don't know in these other areas whether that's going to remain uh, true. I, I would hope that in the area But they of may not care. Thomas doesn't really care. He says, if I can stop women from having mifepristone, yeah. I'm going to do it because well, I am the savior is, of the, uh, the fertilized uh, well, egg. He's, he's, the, he's the savior of, of the world of 1787 and the Constitution of 1898. That's what he's the, he's the savior of. But you've got Thomas and you've got Alito, and those are two dependable votes for almost anything horrible you can imagine. But it's very, very hard to predict where people like Roberts and Kavanaugh and Barrett go, uh, uh, and even and even Gorsuch. So we do have, uh, and and this does get to to to, to your your point about l legitimacy and following the election returns and so on, where those uh, what you might call middle right. Uh, justices who are were considered far questions. right just a few years ago. Well, yeah, the, you have to kind of put middle right in quotes when you when you talk about them. I think I think I think that's right. How much uh, are people paying attention? I think with respect to Rahimi, they might be, which I think Bill makes makes your I hate to call it hopeful, 
but your less dire prediction um, uh, than, than, than mine. But mifepristone, mifepristone is a really important. But the mifepristone case, yep. And that, that one uh, is, is, is crucially uh, important. And how will these judges that are in the center of this court uh, see these uh, relationships between uh, rights of, to reproductive freedom, the power of the federal agencies uh, to, uh, to, to, to regulate, um, and the notion of judicial legitimacy, all of which are wrapped together uh, in, in this series of, of cases. Uh, there's one other tiny glimmer of hope. I read a, uh, an op-ed. I can't remember the, the letter to the editor that came into the Washington Post. can't remember the author. But the author suggested that both Alito and Thomas were surprised by the backlash that they received after Dobbs, after uh, voiding the uh, Roe, overturning Roe versus Wade. And they, in their insular universe, the, the, their narrow, myopic view of what voters want they didn't realize that most voters, and it turns out something like 70% nationally, really are opposed to that ruling and like Roe versus Wade just fine. So that I don't know whether or not that's going to impact it all. On, yeah, on. I don't think it'll impact those two. I think I think we, we learned how, how really thin-skinned Justice Alito is. Uh, uh, you know, he, 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 can't, he can't take the heat in, in the coolest of, of, of kitchens and, and expects that, that, that the court's decisions are, are, are above criticism. I, I don't really think Thomas pays all that, all that much attention to, to that uh, because he considers himself really besieged and off on an island already. Mm. Well, we will leave it there. I can't tell you how wonderful it is to have First Monday with Bruce Miller on First Monday and to every uh, month benefit from your knowledge and insight. Thank you, Bruce Miller. Thanks, guys. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. For two years, a number of school staff members in the Amherst Pelham School District have been working directly with children without having gone through the proper background checks. The oversight places the school in violation of state law. In a statement, Interim Superintendent Doug Slaughter and other school administrators said there is no reason to believe any students were ever in danger. The oversight was discovered during an audit of internal documents, according to town manager Paul Bockelman. It's very disturbing, and I know the acting superintendent is working to correct that, but that's something that needs to be fixed pronto. Massachusetts law requires that school districts review state criminal records every three years. And since last spring, school districts must review information from the state sex offender registry. The Coca-Cola bottling plant is sticking around Northampton for a little while longer. The company planned to close its Northampton plant in the summer of 2023, but now says they plan to stay open through the first quarter of 2024. The closing is a big loss for the city as the plant makes up a quarter of all water and sewer revenue. Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Shera says the delay is not an indication the company may stay in Northampton, as the real estate marketing team is actively looking for buyers for the property. The East Hampton City Council is trying to lower the speed limit on Northampton Street. The council petitioned the state to reduce the speed limit by 10 miles per hour. This follows a crash last August in which two pedestrians were killed. City engineer Dan Murphy is proposing a speed limit of 25 miles per hour between West Street and Florence Road, 30 miles per hour between Florence Road and Abishan Hardware, and 35 miles per hour from Abishan to the city line in Northampton. 
For today, look for sunshine and warm temperatures, high 74 to 78. For tonight, it'll be mostly clear. Some areas of patchy fog. Overnight lows around 50. And the outlook for Tuesday, mostly sunny. Highs around 80. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. I thought I was going to have to go through a hip replacement or some painful, unsuccessful surgery or be crippled the rest of my life. Electrical engineer Dan Vogler had awful arthritic pain in his hips, pain that not only affected him physically, but also emotionally, and it spilled over even to his relationships. I was almost mean. If you're in pain and other people don't sympathize with it, you're lashing out at the wrong people. But then Dan found QC Kinetics. With the latest advances in regenerative medicine, non-surgical treatments with lasting relief. I felt immediate relief. I mean, within half a day, much of the inflammation and pain was down. And today, Dan says he's totally pain-free, living the life he wants. At the end of the fourth treatment, I felt pretty much healed and enthused and was raving about QC Kinetics. I can recommend them highly to anyone. Call QC Kinetics now for your free consultation. Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. What if there were a way to go into cancer surgery or treatment feeling more comfortable and optimistic? Recorded meditations can help. Doctors have said that it makes their job simpler. Nurses tell us their patients may go home sooner and need less pain medication. Cancer Connection creates custom meditations for people affected by cancer, and you don't even have to come in. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. If they ask me, I could write a book about the way you walk, whisper. And it is Monday. It is time for Writer's Block. It is Megan Zinn. Megan, I think we have a very special guest that I'm, I'm going to learn a lot from. Yes, that's, that's the intention today. Um, my guest is Myra Breen, a professor of psychology and education and co-chair of psychology and education at Mount Holyoke College. Welcome, Mara. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to talk to you today. Um, so I, I've always had a fascination about how kids learn to read. I, I say that um, one of maybe the most exciting moment of parenting for me was when, it, when in each case, when my kids read out loud to me for the first time. And of course, they had made much more progress than I had realized because they wouldn't read to me for a while. Um, and so suddenly, you know, they were reading um uh, you know, grade level book, but suddenly it was it was real and it was so exciting. So I'm, I saw um, Mara a post by Mara on social media about recruiting children for her research um, in language ac- reading acquisition, excuse me, and reading comprehension. Um, so I wanted to talk to her and find out more. Um, so um, Mara, just to to start, um, tell us about your research in general. Yeah, great, thank you. So. 
I consider myself a cognitive neuroscientist where basically what I'm interested in is understanding how our brains allow us to do all the incredibly complex cognitive things that we do as humans, um, uh, mainly understanding how language works. Mm -hmm. um, and so trying to figure out how language works in our brains is a huge question. Mm -hmm. um, so I can only really work on a small piece of that. And so the work that I've been doing over the past 15, 20 years is in understanding how our brains process prosody. So this word prosody is describes aspects of language in particular it describes sort of the musical aspects mm -hmm. of language. So when we think about things like what is my pitch doing as I am talking to you? It's rising and falling and there's timing information in what I'm saying. So I phrase things in particular ways. I extend some words and I put silence after others. And that tells you things about what words are connected to others. So, um, so throughout my work, I've been focused really on what is the role of prosody in language production and perception? Um, how do our brains process prosodic information? And then most recently, as you referred, Megan, mm -hmm. we're interested in how we can look at kids' brains and how they're using prosody and how can that um, inform our understanding of how they can most effectively learn to read. All right. How did you get interested in this, in this work? <laughs> yeah, good question. So um, I grew up uh, passionate about music. So oh, I've always been cool. a musician. Um, I even, when I started college, I was majoring in music. I pursued a music career in young adulthood. Um, but at the same time, in parallel, I was really fascinated with these psychological and philosophical questions like, are humans the only animals that use language? Or, you know, um, is my perception of red the same as someone mm -hmm. else's perception of red? You know, these really, yeah. you know, whatever, what other 10 year olds are thinking about. And, <laughs> um, and so I was, um, as an undergrad, I went to Hampshire mm -hmm. College and um, there I was in the School of Cognitive Science and cognitive science is really this field that is really about the studying of minds, so human minds. And so we address that question from a variety of perspectives, including cognitive psychology, linguistics, neuroscience, computer science, anthropology, philosophy. And so through that study, I really found my passion in the study of language. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, what do we know when we know a language? How do our brains process language? How much do languages actually differ from each other? Um, does my experience as an English speaker differ from someone else's experience mm -hmm. because they speak a different language, right? What are these connections between the languages we speak and the thoughts that we might have? Um, and so then when I went into kind of narrow in on my focus, perhaps it was, wasn't surprising then that my focus in my research would be on what are the musical yeah, aspects of yeah. language. And so I think my work really brings together you know, my interest in music, my interest in language, my interest in neuroscience. Yeah, yeah. fascinating. Um, so Mara Breen, a Mount Holyoke Psychology and Education Professor, tell us about your current research project. What are you trying to understand? Yeah, thank you so much. So, all right, so we are hearing a lot these days about the state of reading instruction in this country and the news isn't great. So uh, the most recent information that just came out from the government in 2022 is telling us that uh, in fourth grade, still 37% of our fourth graders aren't reading on grade level. Um, and that is a huge problem because 
you know, we say things like uh, up until grade three or four, you are learning to read, but after that point, you are reading to learn. Mm -hmm. So the idea is if kids are not, you know, kind of fully competent readers by the time they are eight, nine years old, that's going to have serious implications for their ability to learn kind of moving beyond that point. So we have a lot of work to do in this country to figure out how to get our reading instruction back on track. And so because reading is such a complicated cognitive task, there's turns out there's a lot of ways that I think we can be contributing to this question. There's a lot of um, avenues from which we can be improving reading instruction. And so um, in the news a lot these days are questions about what should we be, how should we be teaching phonics? How much phonics should we be focusing on? And my quick answer to that is all the phonics. <laughs> we, have, we have to do a lot to uh, help kids understand the relationship between visual letters on one hand and the sounds mm -hmm. that they make on the other. That's critically important. Um, but having said all that, my work is actually kind of looking at the next level. So, right, again, we think a lot about this process of decoding, which is the process by which kids learn to map letters onto mm -hmm. sounds and then bring those sounds together to then understand exactly what a word is. But reading involves much more than that. So once we understand the individual words, we have to then be able to put the words together. We have to understand the structural relationships between words. We call that syntax. And then we have to understand what are the meaning relationships among words, um, what we call semantics. So my work now is really trying to understand how do kids kind of get to that next level where they're able to put words together to get at meanings. Okay. Um, and so the work that we're doing, um, I'm really excited. We've uh, we have a National Institutes of Health grant that is mm -hmm. funding our research, Excellent. and we are um, we are partnering with the Springfield Museums. And our, um, my lab is currently housed in Dr. Seuss's childhood home, which is in the <clears throat> Forest Park neighborhood of Springfield. And what we're doing is we're bringing kids ages six to ten. Um, into the lab, and we are looking at aspects of their prosodic production and their prosodic comprehension, where we're thinking that really prosody is the key for kids to be able to do this higher level work of integrating words together to get meaning. So um, some of the tasks that we do, as I've told you, I'm really interested in neural signatures of cognitive processing. So one thing that we do is we have kids wear this little looks like a bathing cap and it has electrodes plugged into it. This is a completely non-invasive way of uh, recording neural activity in children. And through this, we can use um, this neural information to help us understand how kids are processing metric structure, which is kind of the organization of sounds in time. And there's a lot of work that's coming out of um, cognitive neuroscience right now that shows that kids who do a better job of understanding rhythmic structure are also better readers. And so we're trying okay. to probe that question mm -hmm. in our lab to see, is there a relationship between kids' ability to allocate attention, um, so neurally to pay attention to things in time, and then does that also predict um, their reading comprehension skill? Wow, Professor Mara Breen of Mount Holyoke, this is just so fascinating, so layered, but it's, it's not just whether uh, in first grade you graduate from the Blue Jay group to the Robin group. It's a little bit more to it. My, my question, when our kids learn to read, I remember there's this moment where they stopped saying out loud mm -hmm. when they were learning 
to connect the sounds, as you said, to the symbols that they're looking at at the page, but all of a sudden started to read to themselves quietly. And I'm wondering whether you absorb more when you're reading quietly to yourself than when you're reading out loud as a child. That is a really good question. And in fact, thank you for saying that because a lot of my work prior to this point has actually been looking at what are the sound processes that we engage in when we're reading silently? So specifically looking at this idea of auditory imagery, right? So when your kid goes from being the kid who reads out loud to being the kid who reads silently, we are suggesting, and in fact, lots of research backs this up, there is still a level at which they are creating those sound representations. And then in fact, using those sound representations that they are imagining to help them understand more effectively. Um, so your question, Bill, about when do they understand better? I think that's a good question. And I think um, part of the answer is that when you are generally like when you're able to read silently and not read out loud, that's also an indication of how automatic those processes are. Mm -hmm. So that generally um, kids who are reading silently are just better readers. So we would expect that they would do better in terms of their comprehension just through that. But I think there's also, it's probably the case, it is likely the case that when you are reading out loud, you are also monitoring yourself mm. in a much more, uh, much more focused way, which you don't have to do when you're reading silently. So in that way, there's sort of less cognitive cost in reading silently. Um, and so, of course, right. And I think we all kind of have that experience. Like it does feel different, particularly as an adult to read mm. out loud versus read silently. And when you're reading out loud, you are much more conscious of how do you sound and are you saying things correctly? Whereas when you're reading silently, you don't have to think about those things so much. Yeah, fascinating. Um, before we go to break, I did want to ask um, Mara, um, we, um, are you still looking for subjects for your research? And if parents are interested in enrolling their children, what should they do? Oh yeah, thank you so much. Yes, we are actually going to be doing data collection for the next two years. Ah. Um, so there's lots of time for people to participate. And so we are recruiting um, area kids ages six to 10, um, as I said, for two two-hour visits to the lab. Um, for the time that they spend, families will receive a stipend of $50 and the children will get various prizes. So if people are interested, they can email us directly. Our email address is capslabmhc, so C-A-P-S-L-A-B-M-H-C at gmail.com. We also have a lab phone number that's 413-349-8299. Wonderful. And so um, we'll be back after a break with Professor Mara Breen of, of Mount Holyoke to talk about reading acquisition and, and comprehension in kids. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone, two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. 
Today and every day, millions of people do business with co-ops, food co-ops, credit unions, workers co-ops, energy co-ops, farmer co-ops, go co-op, and together we can build resilient, inclusive communities. Real Pickles is a worker cooperative in Greenfield, producing organic, raw, and fermented vegetables. Pickles, sauerkraut, kimchi, and more sourced from Northeast Family Farms. Find Real Pickles in the refrigerated section at local markets and at realpickles.com. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And we are back with um, the Writer's Block segment that we enjoy every Monday with uh, Megan Zinn. And she's talking to Mount Holyoke psychology and education professor Mara Breen about reading acquisition with children. Yeah. Um, and we were talking a little bit at the break uh, more about this question of reading out loud and reading quietly to oneself and understanding. And um, is there... Um, you know, so some of us, it feels like we, we understand better when we read out loud. And for some, I think probably when we read quietly. Is that, does that vary um, for different people? Or is there a sense of just a different way of understanding when we read out loud versus when we uh, read quietly? Yeah, that's a good question. I think one of the things that we have to pay attention to is, um, and, and so when, so we do a lot of studying of silent reading processes. So one of the methods that I use in my lab is eye tracking. So we can have someone sit and read words on the screen and we have a camera that can very specifically see, right? What word are you reading at every given moment? And we can use that sort of um, data to tell us what do people look at when, when they're reading? And that gives us a lot of insight into the cognitive processes that they're using. And one of the things that we know from that is that people don't look at every word. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, the better reader you are, the more likely you are to skip words. And of course, people are really consistent about the words they skip. They skip, you know, function words like determiners and, um, you know, small things or conjunctions. Um, and so one of the things that I think we why why we perceive this difference between reading silently and reading out loud is that when we're reading silently we can skip things and we might not even be aware that we're skipping things because we are in the habit of skipping things <laughs> and so um and i remember a, a professor uh in the psychology department at umass who always had this practice where when his lab group was ready to submit a paper to a journal they would all sit around and read it out loud together and so the idea there was whatever Right. If you had written it and maybe you made a typo or something didn't make sense, it was too easy if you were reading silently to kind of just skip over it, not fully process it. But if you had to sit there and read it out loud to your lab mates, well, then you were definitely going to process every word that you had said and you were much more likely to find errors or miscommunications in that way. Yeah, that's fascinating because I've, I've read a bit recently um, that um, as somebody with ADHD, um, and I do this, that people with ADHD often skip a lot and tend to skip to like the end of the paragraph and the end of the page. And I do find myself doing that. So it seems like with um, different, um, you know, different ways of uh, you know, different cognition, um, that might be even more complicated. 
Right. And so, um, and there's a lot, this is a very active area of research with eye tracking during reading is looking at these like individual differences and what do different patterns of eye movements signal about the reader, right? So could we, could we talk about an ADHD pattern of reading? Um, I have a colleague here at Mount Holyoke who also studies kids in reading, and she looks at the eye movement uh, features that demonstrate mindless reading. So take, for example, a second grader who's not a very strong reader and sit them down in front of a passage where they don't know all the words and you can see, right, they're skipping a lot of things that they don't know. They might be going back a lot more. Um, you can see kids who kind of seem to read backwards, <laughs> like they just follow the words in the in the opposite direction. And so again, there's there's a lot that we can tell about the kind of the, the individual skill set that someone is bringing to the task of reading by looking at these eye movements. Well, Professor Breen, you mentioned earlier about the neurocognitive uh, uh, markers. I forget the words that you actually use. But when, when, a child, when a child can't read, can a child think as deeply as a child who does read? Oh, that is a great question. It kind of gets at these questions about the underlying relationships between language and thinking. Um, and so there's a lot of work that's being done in this area, which uses um, method called fMRI or functional magnetic resonance imaging. And it's with this method that we are able to take pictures of brains sort of in progress, right? What is happening in real time? Um, and so with these methods, um, some neuroscientists have been able to show that in fact the neural processes that underlie language are actually somewhat separate from the language the neural processes that underlie more general thinking so it does look like they're pretty dissociated and mm -hmm. so to answer your question the short answer is no dyslexic kids aren't in any way also um they, right they don't have kind of similar related differences or challenges in their thought processes. We kind of assume that that's all in, you know, fully formed. And the challenge with dyslexia is more about um, identifying the sounds and, and more correctly um, getting the timing relationships among sounds. Wow. Okay. Um, Finally, a final question as we wrap up. What can parents do to facilitate the process of, of this reading acquisition and comprehension in their kids um, as just, just as a normal routine part of their um, life with their kids? Yeah, yeah. That's another great question. And again, because reading is so complicated and it it takes, um, it uses so many of our different pathways, right? Vision and sound and semantics that really anything that you do with your children that is about the development of language is also going to facilitate their development of reading. Um, so if we think about, um, you know, very early on, kids are interested in pointing to things and identifying them. And so doing that, right, mm -hmm. learning that um, I can point at something and name it, um, that certain visual patterns have meaning, right? That's really important because kids have to learn very early on that letters can stand for sounds. Um, and so as soon as kids start being interested in letters, it's really important to um, to help them with that, right? Promote that. So, you know, what is what sound does that letter make, right? And again, this is kids learning English because different yeah. languages yes. are actually different. Yeah, in that's the way a whole that other written. subject, yes. Yes, yeah. Um, and it's never too early to introduce books um, into your child's life, right? You can yep. sit there with your three-month-old on your lap and, and give them that experience of seeing things on page so that they understand that you are making a connection between words on the page and sounds. Um, and I think it's also really important to 
to go with your child and the things that they are interested in. So, you know, I am never a person who says, no, don't let them read that book or read that other book, right? Whatever book they want to read, however they want to engage with reading is going to be really valuable. That makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you so much, Mara Breen, professor um, of education and psychology at Mount Holyoke. It's been fascinating to talk to you and learn about this process and and good luck with your research. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Professor and Megan Zinn. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for joining us today on Talk the Talk. Remember, walk the walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at $80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com.